Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is a man who's going to be a happy idiot while he struggles for the legal tender. He is the pretender. Here's my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Uh, Hola, Ben. I mean... So for this episode, we have a special guest. He was a referral from Stephen Kellogg, who guested with us on episode 43, talking about Taylor Swift. His last full-length record is called Bug Fixes and Performance Improvements, and you might have heard his song called New Tattoo on Sirius Radio's Coffee House, because it's awesome. So please welcome to the podcast, Brian Dunn. Hey, hey. So I think you've had other songs played on the coffee house too, not just new tattoo, right? Yeah, they've played a couple of my tunes. Um, it's just cool because you hear them in Starbucks or JetBlue, or JetBlue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or JetBlue, right? Because I I don't have Sirius. I shouldn't say that probably, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know. have Sirius either. <laughs> I think you have to buy a new car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the only time I'm listening to the coffee house is when I'm on JetBlue as well. So right, precisely. I, I totally get it. You wake up the person next to you if you hear me, though, you know. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, so the premise of our podcast, fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast, I ask the all-important question. So what T-shirt are you wearing, Wayne? I'm wearing my Beastie Boys uh, Hello Nasty. Hello Nasty. Very nice. How about you, Brian? What, uh, what T-shirt are you wearing? You know, I, I I did forget about the t-shirt thing, but uh, you know, but I I looked down and I happen to be wearing a a t-shirt for the show Search Party, uh, which is actually a pretty good show. You know, like season one was a little better than season two, but uh, they were giving out these t-shirts for free, and uh, I was like, I never pass up a free t-shirt. So that's right. I like never. free t-shirts. <laughs> Best kind of t-shirts. Yeah, those are my favorite. Uh, so I'm wearing do anything elaborate. I did not change. I now work from home. So I just grabbed the first black t-shirt that was hanging in my closet. And I just happened to be wearing uh, Hannah Harbour and the Lionhearts. I think this is probably what my third time that I've worn this on an episode, Wayne. At least the second. Uh, anyways, I like to give her a little little shout out as as uh, as much as I can. And for any of you Orlando folks. Um, who are voting in the Orlando Weekly Readers Poll. Uh, Please make sure you go out and and vote for Hannah uh, for Best Folk Group. So, Brian, one of the best interactions I've had with lining up a guest was with you. So I messaged you. I told you that Stephen Kellogg had told us that we needed to get you on the show. And this was before that episode actually came out. So I asked you if Stephen had told you what artists had he had picked to discuss you you recall your answer yeah yeah i know i i was i was sitting with him when we we got um we we, got, we had a few beers in in north carolina and then we were i i told it to you more true I'm, uh, this is the pc version of it all but yeah we were <laughs> we were we were shooting the shit and we decided i was like you know man you should really talk about taylor swift because <laughs> he loves taylor swift man and like you know i got nothing against taylor swift or anything like that but steven really has a place in his heart for taylor swift and and it and it showed in that episode did it not wayne oh absolutely yeah. it was it was he was not he was not kidding he and it made me feel more comfortable about saying how much i love taylor swift too yeah you uh 
you 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 gushed on on all about Taylor on that episode as well. So well, we were talking. We were like, you know, it's cooler than doing a singer songwriter album if you're a singer songwriter. And then I came on your show and did a singer songwriter album. So yeah, it's all good. It's I blew all good. it. I'm I'm just glad my microphone is fixed for this particular episode, uh, as opposed to the Stephen Kellogg one. I'm uh, yeah. You sound much better. That could have been our best episode ever if you hadn't ruined it. I know. I know. Well, it could have been our best episode had you told me that I sounded like garbage on the episode. But, you know, you, I thought you knew you failed, man. You failed <laughs> as a co-host. So the rift is already there. That's yeah, right. it is. It is. So I do have to tell you, Brian. So I wasn't super familiar with your music before inviting you on the podcast. But because Stephen had nothing but praise for you, you'd opened a few dates for Caroline Spence as well. Mm-hmm. I believe that's 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 accurate. Yeah, yeah, I love Caroline Spence. Uh, we do too. Uh, yeah, everybody on this podcast does. Yeah, we uh, we had her on uh, a few months ago, right before her uh, her last record dropped, and uh, that was just a lot of fun. But as I always do, I do a deep dive on all of our guests' music before having them on, and I got to tell you that your song "Taxi" has been in heavy rotation for me since I heard it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're stealing all you're stealing all the good stuff. Yeah, I, I I I felt like I was cramming for this because I only had two days to listen to all this Jackson Brown, and I thought this morning I gotta I gotta at least listen to something by the guest, and so I know. And I saw a new tattoo, and anything about tattoos, I'm gonna listen to that first. And I thought it was amazing. Well, your daddy's gonna cover your way. Mama's gonna say it's okay When you call them every Monday at nine And tell them that it's going fine All your friends, they just exhaust you You could've left, but where would you go off to? Oh, and what would it have cost you? So you got a new tattoo To make you feel something new sign of a cross on your thigh and you don't even really know why but you're hoping that it marks the end of a time that you could just forget so you call it a draw for the night and you tell yourself it's all right and the next thing that came up was taxi and i was like wow i don't now i don't know which one i like better but i it does it did definitely make me feel like uh, country radio is is doing the world wrong by playing Luke Bryan and Luke Combs and yeah, I'm not a, I don't know, somebody else named Jake and it's all gotten rednecker and I should be playing you and Caroline I generally Spence don't uh, Stephen Kellogg. <laughs> yeah, I don't trust anybody named Luke, so you know. <laughs> I don't blame you. I actually don't mind Luke Combs. We saw him open for uh, for Hootie and Jason Aldean. Well, I completely agree that a long neck ice cold beer has never broke my heart. <laughs> there you go. You know, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's go back to taxi. Yeah, sure. So some of the lyrics on there. So the taxi cab driver's asking you where you're heading and your answer is that's a that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Uh so that record came out what, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. 
you able to answer that question yet? Or are you yes. still figuring it out? Where am I heading? Uh, in a uh, downward? No, um, I uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't think you ever really know. But I was it was the first uh, realization that I I wasn't really going to know anything about what was going to happen in life. And it's honestly, it was really inspired by um, a lot of songs on on the record we're about to talk about because it's sort of about this existential awareness, this dissatisfaction with your current state. And I was sort of thinking about Late for the Sky when I wrote it. Very nice. Uh, you, you probably should have put the, uh, the, the sound effects of the door closing and the, and the taxi drive, yeah. taxi driver <laughs> speeding off at, at the end I of mean, it. I mean, it but... would have been a little too close, but yeah. So I did read one interview of you um, where you talked a little bit about that song and about leaving home to go to New York City to make it in the in the music business. So what part of New York State are you from? I grew up in a town called Monroe, which is like, I don't know if you've ever been, if you go from New York City to like Woodstock or Albany, about halfway up, you're going to look around and you're going to be like, what is this place? And that's that's where I'm from. <laughs> I'm I'm actually flying into Albany on Friday because I'm I'm heading up there to go to Cooperstown for the oh, first cool. time. Right yeah. on, baseball Hall of Fame. You doing that thing? I am. Uh, uh, Edgar Edgar Martinez, my guy from the Seattle Mariners, is getting inducted. So, uh, so I I'm, see. I'm heading up there for that. I'm I am going to have to be around a bunch of Yankee fans because Mariano is going in mm-hmm. this year. Yep. Which I don't know how I feel about that right now. You're talking to one, so <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so for you, was it was it a no brainer to go to NYC as opposed to maybe going to Nashville or LA or even like a, a Charlotte? You know what? I I, w- I would say yes, but because I always wanted to live in New York. But nothing's really a no brainer in the music industry. Is always a lot of deliberation and thought about where I wanted to base my career out of and. But ultimately, and I don't, you know, you never really will get an answer on any of that. It's it's just you kind of have to pick your slice of the universe because, I, I don't know, bands seem to be coming out of everywhere these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just, I've always been a New Yorker and I, I lived in Boston for a couple of years. And then when I was getting ready to move, I thought about L.A. and I thought about Nashville, but I just never saw myself in either of those places. Couldn't see a Yankee fan being in Nashville? 
you know, uh, with the, without running the risk of saying too much, yeah, I thought that maybe that might be a little tricky. Um, but, you know, a lot of my friends have fared really well down there um, that are from up around here. So I think, I think, you know, it's a beautiful place and, you know, I love going to hang out there because I would say like the largest concentration of my music friends live down there. Yeah. But um, I've just always sort of been infatuated with New York City. There you go. Yeah. I've actually I've actually been reading the book Meet Me in the Bathroom. Oh yeah, that's that's really good. I really like that book. Yeah, so if for for those of you who have not read it, so it's about the New York scene in the late 90s, early 2000s and you know, based on the bands that I'm reading about in the book like The Strokes and Interpol, etc. It doesn't seem like New York is the type of place where singer-songwriters thrive, but Maybe that's shifted over the last decade or so. No, 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 <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, no, it's, it's, you know, it's there, there are a lot of singer songwriters around, but it's, I would never say that New York is the most nurturing community for honestly anybody. You kind of have to just be slightly insane and really want to live here, you know, cause it's not going to, it's not going to be inviting at first. So, so what is what does the the culture of music in New York look like right now? Well, like I mean, uh, like anything you know that that's happening in New York, it's you know it's vibrant and exciting if if you look in the right places and everything. I mean, there's it's still in a way New York is still what it always was in in that like you know it's the it's a large concentration of people all sort of in different walks of life trying to doing things at a very high level. And so it's, you know, it's great when it's great, you know, and there's a lot of great people around. It's a little bit more competitive and less collaborative, I think, than maybe some some other music cities. But um, I, I wouldn't say my career is largely based out of New York so much as I, I mostly tour, you okay. know, and New York is where I rest my head and, and, you know, occasionally play a good hometown, you know, show and bring all the friends out and stuff. So, so what's, what's your circle of influence there in New York? Cause I know, you know, Steven's what he's in Connecticut and mm-hmm. Car- Caroline's in Nashville and yep. Liz Longley, who you're opening up for in, in a week or so. She's, she's Nashville too, right? Liz is in Nashville. We went to college together Oh, okay. and, um, and I will correct you and say that it's a Coville show only, <laughs> to boost. <laughs> no, but I, I used to open for Liz all the time. Um, Liz, Liz, Liz was probably the first person I met that was traveling the country playing her songs in like 200 seat venues. I didn't even know that people played music, you know, anywhere but Madison Square Garden or a bar. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, the thing about, I mean, the thing about any community is it kind of, it, you can, you know, Liz is one of my closest friends, my buddy, Ken Yates, but he lives up in Canada, you know, and then in New York, I have a little side project with some guys that, that write tunes around town. Um, and, uh, the Anthony D'Amato, he lives here. He's in that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great people hanging around. Um, I don't want to name drop cause it feels like, you know, I know feels... I'm <laughs> put you on the spot on that. Question, I'm like, you I never think, believe yeah. who I see in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I was just trying to get you to say, you know, I, I, I hang out with the strokes and, you know, that kind of deal. But, you yeah. know, I don't know any of the strokes, but no. but um, uh, 
James from LCD Sound System showed me to the bathroom once. Okay, there you go. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's something. That's something. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So so uh, you've got a song about the ghost in the Chelsea Hotel. You had a chance to visit the Chelsea Hotel, considering you're a New Yorker. Yeah, I've been I've been by. It's it's not really. I don't think people are really going in it right now because they're it's constantly in a state of construction. But yeah, you know. And and for those of you who are not familiar with Chelsea Hotel, so some of those ghosts. Well, actually, there's a lot of ghosts. I'm sure in the Chelsea Hotel. So Sid Vicious killed his girlfriend Nancy there. Mm-hmm. Dylan Thomas drank himself to death there. Um, Dylan lived there for a short time. William Burroughs lived there. Did Dylan actually die? Because he drank himself to death at the White Horse, but did he die in the Chelsea? Is that from what from what I gather? I don't know. Uh, it sounded like he probably drank himself to death while being a resident of the Chelsea, but I don't know if he actually died there. In the gotcha. Chelsea. Gotcha. Um, let's see who else, who else were some of the, 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 uh, the ghosts. Oh, Arthur Miller lived there for a short time. Um, after he divorced Marilyn, Patty Smith lived there. You could read all about that. I read, I read her biography. Mm-hmm. So she lived there with, with Maplethorpe in the seventies. Mm-hmm. So, who, which ghosts were you trying to conjure up with, uh, with that song? I mean, it was, it was, it, you know, the song was, was uh, like a direct homage to Leonard Cohen, uh, yeah. and written after he passed. And I was, you know, it's funny because it's the Chelsea hotel is so synonymous with Leonard Cohen because of the song, you know? And so to call the song Chelsea hotel was like, I, I, I sort of, I struggled with it for a little bit and then I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out anything else that the song could possibly be about because I was playing with the melody and then I thought maybe using the Chelsea Hotel was a little too well-worn. And then finally I just was like, ah, you know what? This is what the song's about, you know? So that's uh, made its way into the song. <laughs> and they do it so well Some folks are ghosts in the Chelsea Hotel Now it ain't like no move, and it ain't like no book, and it ain't like no romantic photo you took. It's one shot of heaven, and it's one shot of hell. And you fall through the floor in the Chelsea Hotel. Ooh, the moon hangs so low, and it does it so easy. I don't even know, but I don't need your blessing, don't need your farewell. Cause I'm just a ghost in the Chelsea Hotel. I looked at your Timber House sessions that's on Spotify, and the first thing that I thought of was, was oh, cool, he uh, covered Cohen in mm-hmm. uh, Taxi. He probably covered uh, Harry, Harry Chapin, Chapin yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good thing that songs song titles are not copyrightable. <laughs> but listen, a lawsuit, a lawsuit would be really good for my career. You know, it would bring a lot of eyes to me, so, you know, I don't mind. There you go. The the whole adage of uh no no bad publicity. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got some harmonica in your songs as well. I I did see some some live performances where you where you pull the harmonica. You sure you're not from Jersey? 
No, I'm not. That? No, I'm not from Jersey, but you okay. know that's that's uh, you know I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there because you picked Jackson Brown. You didn't pick a Bruce Springsteen record to talk about. So. No, but only because I thought it would be too on on brand for me. <laughs> I, and well, we've already done a Springsteen album. I mean, Wayne can is that kind of the limit? One it one one Bruce record per year. Oh, I don't, I don't think we should limit ourselves to that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna limit I'm gonna limit the Tom Waits. <laughs> I know you've already put a put a limit on the Tom Waits records. Uh, yeah. we, we just did one Tom Waits record, and uh, it's gonna be at least a year before oh. I can I can. Which ones you guys again. do? We did swordfish, swordfish trombones. trombones. Oh, swordfish trombones. That's a good one. <laughs> I could talk for days about swordfish trombones. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna log out here. I'll I'll patch <laughs> I'll patch in Willie and you, Willie and Wayne can can talk about that for for another episode. So, oh, not a fan, <laughs> not a fan. Okay, I you know there were a couple songs that that grew on me. Um, I you know and I and I said this on the episode. I listened to it five times, mm-hmm. so I, I I gave it a legit chance, and I knew going into it, I'm like. I already had a little bit of prejudice because I'm just, I, I like, I like when other people do Tom Waits songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Easy. He's in the room with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tom. Uh, I, I just didn't convert. And I think Wayne, you, you, you kind of converted. I, you know what? I gave it a fair shot, and I, I didn't. I feel better for having listened to it. I would say if you're not a, if you're not a Tom Waits guy, Swordfish Trombones is like, is like trying to, it's like it's jumping in pretty. I don't know. It's like starting with crack cocaine. It's it's like a <laughs> it's just skipping weed and just going right. to Yeah, the crack it's cocaine. like and and it's also sword swordfish trombones. I feel like the the thing that's important about it is that it's kind of on its way to rain dogs. So it's kind of like a transitional record, you know. Yeah. And uh, but it's it's like I don't know. It's it's pretty hardcore. It starts you on like you know, you know, the heart of Saturday night or maybe small change, you know. It's I, I feel like Swordfish Trombones, if that was the first Tom Waits record I heard, it would be a head scratcher as well. So Yeah, I I even went back and I listened to Closing Time, which I I don't mind closing time, mm-hmm. e- even though it's Tom that's that's singing those songs. But yeah, Swordfish was uh very avant garde to me. And, and I and I threw this out on that episode and I don't think we ever got to the root of it. I love musicians who are inspired by tom waits but i don't like the person who has inspired them (laughs) and that and that and that's really a a strange dichotomy for me something that i'm probably going to need some therapy in order to uncover why i mean uh, you know that's that does deserve some unpacking (laughs) probably does all right uh so before we jump into Jackson Brown, or is there any questions that we should be asking you that we we just haven't asked you about your own your own career? No, those are all things. I should have a new record coming out sometime before we're all geriatric, and uh, you know, uh, hard at work on that. And then uh, you know, and I'm just present. I'm just here. <laughs> cool. So are, so are you going to be releasing, you know, a couple singles along the way or are you just going to going to throw out the whole album and say, here you go? I think uh, I think we're going to do a bunch of singles because uh, that's sort of the way it looks. I'm not I'm not 
Beyonce. I can't just roll it out. <laughs> so we'll be we'll be we'll be doing, you know, probably four or five singles leading up to the album. But we're just about finished like today today or tomorrow's probably gonna be the final day. So very yeah. cool. We will definitely keep a keep an ear open for that. Awesome. All right. All right. So so one last question before we dive into Jackson Brown. Sure. So I want to see what side of the fence you're on for this. So Toto's Africa, good or bad song? That's a very difficult question for me. Um, good or bad song? You know, when it comes when it comes on, does it make you smile? Yes, and sing along. No, or or <laughs> or do you? Okay, have different answers. Or 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 do you want to just immediately change the channel? I used to play it in a band when I was in college. Oh, that, talk about unpacking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go ahead. I used, to play, I used to play in a bar band when I lived in Boston, and we would open every set with Toto Africa, which it, like, it, you know, when I remember learning the song, and I, I think I had to play it on keys, and I don't even know how to play the keys, so that was particularly uncomfortable. And I remember being like, this song is, this is awful. You know, like this is Toto's Africa. But then, you know, now when I hear it, I get like kind of a wistful, uh, you know, I remember that time and, you know, it was a nice time. (laughs) Don't let the nostalgia cloud your mind. Yeah. Well, there are songs that I played in that band that that I can't, I can't ever hear again. And I wouldn't say Africa is one of them. Uh, So, so what are they? That I, you know, I can't say or I'd have to kill you. Okay. All right. (laughs) It's too incriminating. That's the rules. Yeah. For the longest time, I couldn't listen to Beverly Hills by Weezer because that was what my cover band started off all of our sets. Oh, okay. I got you. I mean, Beverly Hills, that's like a, it's got, it's like what, three chords the whole time, right? So Uh, it's it's super easy. That's, you know, you know, that, and that was the first song that I, that I learned on the bass. So I was like, oh, I, I can do this. (laughs) It's the easiest stinking bass line ever. Um, which, which is probably the reason why we played like three Weezer songs in our, in our 30 song set. Yeah. Uh, because, because they were all super easy to play. So yeah, Toto's Africa is a little bit harder to play. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it's like, it's uh, my final word on it. It's a very strange song to have been so popular. Yeah. And for that, I don't change, I don't change it when it comes on the radio. 600 million listens on Spotify. It's doing better than me. <laughs> yeah, that 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 just tells you everything you need to know. There there's a lot of smiles yeah. from Toto's Africa. So <laughs> Wayne, you're just dead inside. That's all. That's not true. <laughs> all right. So let's let's talk uh let's talk your your pick. So Brian tell us tell us what uh record that you chose to revisit. All right. Well, I chose so I chose "Late for the Sky" by Jackson Brown, which is one of my all-time favorite records, um, and probably a record that I've listened to just as much, if not more, than any other record I own. Based on uh, there's a couple of things that I am always coming back to with this record, which the songwriting is remarkable, and it all deals with this sort of existential restlessness that's so profound for somebody who is Jackson's age at that time. And then just the the general sonic quality of the record is so warm and inviting that it just, for a while I was sure that this was what all music should sound like. This is like, this was the, the ultimate record sonically. This is what we were all aiming for. I don't know if I believe that now. I think I have a little bit of a wider scope. (laughs) 
Yeah, I I messaged you a few weeks ago with a snapshot of our Records Revisited podcast Facebook page where I posted a video of Shape of a Heart mm-hmm. by Jackson Brown. And I told you, this is your fault. <laughs> because I found myself going down a Jackson Brown wormhole for a weekend. And not to be confused with the Jackson Brown hole, because that's a whole other thing that we don't want to talk about on the on the podcast. But oh god! But what what are some of your Jackson Brown go to songs? So that that's my go to shape shape of a heart is that is a masterpiece. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful song, and especially the the version he cut on the the solo acoustic volume oh, two. So good, really. Yeah, because because the thing the, the single or uh, it's on uh it was on holdout or lawyers and that Love? was uh right after that that was um uh the nineteen eighty six one which was uh, uh, now I gotta go now I gotta go oh wait, wait lives in the balance lives in the balance or, that's it yeah yeah lives yeah. in the balance and yeah that's, so that's that's not a good album yeah sonically it's very strange like it's it's just very eighties out you know yeah very much so and uh. But that song, you know, being about his his wife's suicide, when when rendered down to sort of that solo performance on that volume two, and just sort of like the wisdom of an older Jackson Brown singing that song, it's it's just it's it's just heartbreaking. It's just the the I, I don't even know. It's just it's just moving. Yeah, the Pretender. That is another one of my go tos. I I quoted that uh, uh, earlier in. Uh, in, in introducing Wayne, um, yes. being, being, <laughs> being, being the happy idiot. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, poor Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the worst thing I've been called by no, Ben. It's no, it's not. Um, and then, you know, while we were prepping for this episode, so a duet of Jackson Brown and Leslie Mendelssohn came out called a human touch. Yeah. That song kills me. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I saw him. Uh, he played that. I, I went to the show a couple weeks ago. They were at the Beacon with Lucius, and uh, they had Leslie Mendelson come out and sing that song with them. Nice. And uh, it was the first time I had heard it. That that had to have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with Jackson, I, I one of the things that I find so remarkable about him is that his th- th- he's still really good for a a new song. You know, like he's there's a song on on that solo acoustic volume two called My Stunning Mystery Companion. That's a relatively new um a new song. Well new, not new now, but I, I want to say it came out in two thousand five or something like that. It's on the Naked Ride Home album. Yeah. Um two thousand two. But that song is that's that's one of his best. And then obviously any honest honestly anything off the first I want to say five records saturate before using for every man Late for the Sky, what am I missing there? Um, uh, the the Pretender, Run on Empty, yeah, anything up to uh, anything up through Holdout, and then Holdout it gets a little dicey, you know. Yeah, but there's some good there's some good stuff on on that uh, on Holdout. Yeah, that girl could sing is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the one song, and I think he still performs Call It Alone live i think call it alone is the best song on that record for if if i were if i were gun to head (laughs) yes yes absolutely yeah and i do and i do have to say so i'm i'm a big sucker for i'm alive from 93 yeah i'm alive it's that's so uh, somebody tweeted recently that 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 and when when they uh when they write the history of dad rock there will be no more that there will be 
there's no record that's more dad rock than I'm alive. And I I mm. fully agree with that. <laughs> guilty, guilty then. Yeah. No, but I'm I'm yeah. alive is a great record and you know, it, it kind of fits into that. I feel like a lot of songwriters had a bit of a renaissance right around that period who had had great popularity in the 70s, like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell kind of had this like the 80s were not kind to them. And then they came back in the early 90s with these sort of crystalline but concise records that showcased what they do in in a way that I always see those records as very they sound like CDs that my parents would have on. They kind of fit into this the same era of it was like Eric Clapton unplugged, New Moonshine by James Taylor, I'm Alive by Jackson Brown, like this very specific era in time. And uh so that's how I'll always see I'm Alive, but there's some great, great stuff on that record. He actually opened that that show I just saw a couple weeks ago with I'm Alive. Excellent. Wayne, how about you? What what are some of your go to Jackson Brown tunes? The Pretender. Uh, tender is the night. Tender is the night. Uh, doctor, yeah, doctor, my eyes. I have a, I have a fondness for lawyers in love, even though I know it's, it is kind of on that eighties edge. But I, the title track, I actually love that. Uh, tender is the night. Uh, Boulevard. Uh, gosh, running on empty. Loadout stay. Mm-hmm. I don't think those two should ever be done without being done back to back together. Right. Right. Yeah, I remember being vilified for. I actually purchased Lawyers in Love. What was that? 83, 84? Oh, yeah. I think so. And and I remember, and I don't remember who it was, Wayne. Uh, it was one of our friends who, who, when they saw that I had the cassette of this, just gave me such a ration of crap where they're like, what are you listening to this crap for? Mm-hmm. And I felt, and I felt really bad. Cause you know, you're a teenager and you succumb to peer pressure. So I remember, I don't even remember what I did with it. I don't know if I threw it away. I don't know if I sold it, uh, to, you know, one of those, you know, used music stores, but I, I righted my wrong many years later when I was purchasing CDs of, of folks that, that really meant a lot to me, Neil Young, Van Morrison during during that time frame. And Jackson Brown was one that I went back and I purchased a number number of his catalog. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I righted that wrong and I bought Lawyers in Love again. There's a lot of things wrong with that record. Oh, yeah. um, it's not it's not a perfect record by by any stretch of the imagination. But, you, you know, you you mentioned the two best songs on that on that uh, particular record. And you know, for a rocker is a good tune as well. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I like knock on any door as well. Um, there, I mean, there's some good stuff on. That oh, record. I can. And I, listen, I can show love for any Jackson Brown record now, you know, because they kind of once once things kind of get folded into the past, you, you you see them for what they are. You know, they, they'll never be the, the classic 70s records of his. But they if you go do some some mining, there's there's still brilliance in in the songwriting. Absolutely. Lawyers in Love is an unfortunate title for a song, but it's, yeah, it's, I know. you know, but it really does stick with you. <laughs> it, it does. It does. So uh, probably a good segue to one of the things that, that I wrote down in my in my notes, because I go back to the literary stuff frequently. And one of my favorite writers is Nick Hornby. So he wrote an essay in his book called Songbook. Mm-hmm which is um, just him talking about some of his favorite records and some of his favorite uh, favorite songs. And he, he talked about how he was kind of late in the game to listening to Jackson Brown because 
to to my point of not being it's not cool as a teenager to listen to Jackson Brown. So he quoted, so this is from from his book. He says, Jackson Brown wasn't a punk. He had a funny pudding bowl haircut that wasn't very rock and roll. He wrote, take it easy at a time when I didn't want to take it easy. Mm -hmm. And though I hadn't heard any of the songs, I knew they were wimpy, navel gazing and sensitive. It was American in all the worst ways and none of the best. (laughs) But he adds, you have to have lived a little, I think, to be able to recognize the depth of feeling that has shaped these moments and these songs. And if Late for the Sky is perfect accompaniment to a divorce, it's not just because it's regretful lyrics fits, but because divorce peels away yet another layer of skin and thus allows us to hear things, chords and solos and harmonies and what have you properly. Mm-hmm. End of quote. So... And that whole essay is worthwhile. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's my there, my plug for Nick Hornby. But reading this from Hornby, so I understand how, you know, myself and Wayne can relate to Jackson Brown because, you know, we're we're old dudes. We're in our, well, we're in our 50th year of life we're, now. We're yeah. So we've, we've experienced a few things mm-hmm. along the way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, birth, uh, birth of kids and death of siblings and what have you. So Brian, with you being much younger than us, why and how are you connecting with Jackson Brown? Cause you, there's a, there's a wide expanse. You're probably what, 20 years younger than us. I am exactly 20 years younger than you. Yes. Yeah. How are you connecting with Jackson and like, what was your introduction to, to, to Jackson Brown? Well, it's funny that you say that because you know, obviously, I I understand Hornby's point there, but um, and I and I love him as a writer, but I think that when I so I was born in '89, so a lot of the history of what we now consider, I guess, classic rock was already it was already written. So a lot of things, and as you see, like you know, time does to music, they kind of get folded together where there's not such a dissimilarity if you're if it's 1995. And you're choosing between Bruce Springsteen or a Jackson Brown record, you know, whereas in 1978, it might have it might have meant everything about who you were, you know, kind of like how this is a weird analogy. But like once upon a time, Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel couldn't have been considered like they were like the Cain and Abel of of Genesis, you know. And now if you if you like Peter Gabriel, I'd probably recommend Phil Collins to you, you know. And I think that time just has a weird way of folding it all together. So I never really got that with Jackson Brown, that he was somebody that was uncool to listen to. And actually, one of the things I think that I, I, I'm constantly defending in drunken conversations with my friend is that Jackson Brown is actually one of the most profoundly cool artists out there. He he wrote These Days for Nico, and he's still very like um, tuned into what's happening with music. All his opening acts are always really, um, really like on the cutting edge. He was just out with Lucius and he's, you know, really close with the Dawes guys and they, they've done a bunch of touring together. And he's, he's kind of like for his, for his con- compared to his contemporaries has kind of stayed on the hipper side of things. Um, yeah. But, but because I was born in 89, I had never got the memo at all that Jackson Brown was uh, <laughs> potentially uncool or that just any of the music that I was listening to through my parents' record collection was uncool, you know? 
but yeah. that's what it was. They had my my mom was all sort of sort of Laurel Canyon singer songwriters, and so we had the Pretender and um, Running on Empty. We actually didn't have Late for the Sky, so I think I picked it up later on. At uh, there's a record store in town called Soundtracks with an X um, mm. that had a lot of used vinyl, and uh, they were at that time. You know, it it wasn't like the vinyl renaissance yet, so everything was a dollar. So I was I was just buying up anything that I liked the cover of. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, let's get some bio info, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll dive into each of the songs. So uh, this is Late for the Sky. This is the third Jackson Brown album. So Asylum Records founder David Geffen essentially told him that he needed to complete his next album a little quicker because the the previous previous record for every man was over budget took forever to produce so this particular album completed in six weeks half the cost of for every man and he definitely enlisted a number of his friends you can hear dan fogelberg don henley jd souther on a number of harmonies and probably doesn't hurt that there were only eight songs on the record and a number of them are longer than five minutes. So you've got that why you can uh, hurry up and, and complete a record when you've only got eight songs as opposed to 10 or, or 12 or however many. This album was ranked number 375th on Rolling Stone magazine's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. That would be Brown's highest ranking on the Rolling Stone 500. And uh, Wayne, if you remember, we looked at some of the records on the Rolling Stone list when we did our episode with Ira of Not a Surf. So the record he chose was The Police as Regatta de Blanc, which ranked at 372. We just did the episode with Dave Kooning from The Killers on the Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream that also ranked at 362. So apparently for our guest, the sweet spot... For for the Rolling <laughs> or half of the three hundred for the Rolling Stone five hundred is uh between three fifty and four hundred apparently so yeah well what are you gonna do man talk about Sergeant Pepper right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know we're now we're now once this gets released we're right around fifty episodes are you aware Wayne that we have not done a Beatles record or a Rolling Stones record yet. Well, then I guess that just gives us something to look forward to. Absolutely. All right. Um, what's interesting on that Rolling Stone list? So the Eagles debut was ranked 368, and that included the song Take It Easy, which Jackson Brown wrote with mm-hmm. Glenn Fry. So there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Album was certified gold in 90 in 74, platinum in 1989. And um so let's uh, let's dive into this. So as a reminder, our scoring is based on the number of songs on the record. So Wayne, how many songs on this record? Only eight. Which means our top song is going to get eight points. Next favorite song, seven on down to our lowest score of one. And here is the first song. This is Late for the Sky. And I can't pretend I know I Close to the end of the feeling we've known. 
song is lyrically brutal, if you, particularly if you've just gone through a divorce and have possibly gone through more than one in your life. Uh, it is uh, extremely powerful. And I mean, I don't, it's all personal. And the lyrics are, uh, have a, a couple of the passages have, I literally like, I have to like fight back tears, even though I knew they were coming up. I think uh, the one, the biggest one is the, uh, how long have I been sleeping the first time he goes through that? Um, and that, that whole, he just captures the whole, uh, all of it just um, incredibly well. Poignant is the word that uh, continued to come to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brian, what do you think about this song? Uh, I have this as my favorite song on the record, um, which is a rarity for me to have track one side one, but I just think this song is so profound and sets the scene so well for the the rest of the record. And it, it captures what Jackson Brown does the best, which is sing about love and relationships and how they relate to our time on earth. And uh, musically, I think this song, just when you sort of drop the needle and, and it, it just, you know, comes in, you're immediately interested or i feel that you are you know it's just up there with my favorite track one side ones of all time and uh yeah my favorite song on the record yeah it's 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 a good one i've got this as a six and i struggled with my eight through eight through uh five probably because i felt like they were just really interchangeable um, I connected with one of the other songs, uh, that comes a little bit later. And to that point, my one thing I would say is that I don't, and I don't mean it as a, uh, as a slight, but he, when you have a specific and distinct kind of sound and, and style, mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of these songs kind of fall into the very classic Jackson Brown mold. And so it can be hard to differentiate them. But this one stood out to me. Um, and like I say, musically, uh, David Lindley, I don't, he, he, I think that he's got a steel guitar going in there, but he's not at first I thought, well, he's not really, I mean, when you hear pedal steel guitar, it, it, you know, it's crying in the night. It's a, it's a classic thing that you never, you can, you always recognize. And he's at first I thought he's, is he learning? to play steel guitar well but i think he's just bringing it he's like taking it down a notch to to get the mood and then it all made a little bit more sense but um this is just powerful songwriting like i say there's a there's a genuineness to his lyrics like i mean i don't know his life but i'm i don't know that you could write something this moving without having been through it i think it'd be you'd be incredible if you could Mm -hmm. yeah hold hold that thought on david lindley because i do have I have very few criticisms on this record, but I do have one coming up and it's because of just some production stuff. Pro- na- nothing to do with Lindley's playing because he's definitely a multi-instrumentalist. So he's not just playing guitar, but the fiddle that you're going to hear in, in a couple songs, uh, that's Lindley as well. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Here's the second song. Here is Fountain of Sorrow. When you see through love's illusions, there lies the danger. And your perfect lover just looks like a perfect fool. So you go running off in search of a perfect stranger. 
And this was actually released as a single. So they removed two minutes from the album version to release it as a single. Didn't help it, though. Didn't chart. And uh, one of the themes that I've seen from Jackson, not just in this this record, but, you know, kind of going back to my reference of I'm Alive he really talks a lot about the whole duality of man, you know, this constant struggle between good and bad and the light and darkness. And, and I think that this really resonates in this particular song. And I'm, I'm not surprised that there's no reference to a fountain of youth in this song. Um, there's a reference of youth on the, uh, you know, after the deluge, but when you hear about a fountain, I don't know if if you guys do word association, but I either think of a drinking fountain or I think of fountain of youth. And I think that this is this song is more of a fountain of experience, which has the whole differing fountains of sorrow and those fountains of light that he he references. Mm -hmm. So my uh, am I am I going too too deep on the lyrics, Wayne? Because, you know, I'm apt to do that. No, I I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I just the lyrically, I I, it's it's classic uh, Jackson Brown. I think part of it was I'm coming off of a uh, a song that I just absolutely love and uh, feel so personally connected to, and so then this one comes and it's it's a, like I say, it's along the same vein. It's not. It's not terribly different than your, you know, there's, there's something you should expect from a Jackson Brown record. And then there's, I think that one of the things I would say as a criticism, I, it's great to have Don Henley and JD Souther be your friend, but then if you get them singing harmony on your record, it's a fine line between sounding like a, an Eagle song that, cause he does have a voice a little, very comparable to Glenn Fry. But I think that this one came along after something that I was deeply connected to. And so I, there was a letdown already set up. And then I, this, this song didn't seem to have any, I don't know, it didn't have any big moments. There's no, no haymakers. It was just kind of a stand. And then it drug on for six, six minutes and 42 seconds. I, I was just going to ask if, if the single version would have been on this record for you and shaved off those two minutes would that have maybe changed a little bit for you? And I tried to, and I looked at it from that angle, but the songs that I put ahead of it, I mean, there's a, it's funny is you put this on another record with, with 12 songs and this, this isn't a two anymore. Now it's a, you know, now it's a five or something. So yeah. it's, it's, it's clearly all relative, but the songs that I ranked ahead of this, um, I, I really thought were better. Okay. What you got on this uh, this song, Brian? 
Well, I this song for me is is kind of um, just at the core of the record. It's it's a it's I you know I can't say it's one of my favorite songs on the record, but I think it's just because of repeat listens and it sort of has found a place weirdly on classic rock radio, even though it didn't uh, chart. So I feel like maybe this is one of the few tunes from this record I've heard just like one too many times Mm -hmm. Um, because this, this one is kind of in the ether and it's sort of become considered a, like a classic Jackson Brown song sort of famously written about Joni Mitchell. Um, I, but the first time I, 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 when I first got this record, the first time I heard it, I remember being, uh, very drawn in by the story and trying to sort of there was there was something captivating about the character that he was talking about this this person who who seems to have this well of sadness you know um so i you know i put this right in the middle of the record for me in terms of uh favorite songs uh but yeah fountain of sorrow it's i i don't have anything bad to say about it i'm i'm not bothered by its length i but you know i'm also i you know, long-winded, as you can tell from talking to me. <laughs> oh, we're we're all about the long-windedness. Well, at least I, <laughs> at least I am, anyways. Um, right. Actually, Wayne, uh, I've been editing the last uh, the last episode we we did about Smashing Pumpkins, and you you have a couple long diatribes in that one as well. So, <laughs> well, I try to I try to save them. They look more dramatic when you don't do it all the time. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's get some scores. So, Wayne. I gave I gave it a two. Okay, and then Brian, I gave it a four, and I'm uh, I'm giving it a five. So apparently, I liked it a little bit more than you two, but not much. All right, moving on. Here's third song. This is farther on. Wayne, get us started on farther on. I, I just didn't think it was his best stuff lyrically. I mean, ocean or on a drift, a drift on an ocean of loneliness. I don't know. I guess I expected better. Some of it. Um, also, this one is once again I, the the guitar. If it's a steel guitar, he's not. He's not committing to it, which I had some reservations about. But but ultimately, I just. It didn't, I felt like it sounded a lot like a Jackson Brown song, but it, it just didn't. I mean, I, I, I don't, I know cliche isn't the word that a songwriter wants to hear about his, about his stuff, but I just, I guess it wasn't as remarkable or as inspired as some of, uh, well, actually as, as much as anything else on this record, I felt. Yeah. To, to your point on the guitar, I felt like the guitar on this really was only relevant during the opening. And then for the guitar solo in the middle of the song, 
And when I heard the guitar kind of sprinkled throughout the song, it just, it felt a little out of place. I don't think to your point, Wayne of, well, it sounds like he's just beginning to, to, to learn how to play the guitar. I don't think that that's the case. I just think that it's, it's just misplaced. It just doesn't, it's not cohesive with the rest of the song. To me. See, to me, that's the Lindley sound, though. The Lindley sound is a little scratchy and intentionally a little rough around the edges so that the song doesn't sort of fall into this country thing. It's just sort of implied. Yeah. And that's that to me is that the, and it's sort of the sound of those first these these first five Jackson Brown records. I think he leaves after Holdout. But um you know, it kind of defines it, it, it. Basically, what it does for me is it teeters the song on country rock without ever fully going there. But you know, Jackson obviously has roots in country rock, as he, as you mentioned earlier, he wrote "Take It Easy," and you know, he was, uh, he was, you know, it, uh, but the, I, I have a love for Lindley. So this is to me, this is classic Jackson Brown. Of course, the the argument is always where's the line between cliche and classic. This feels like musings from Jackson Brown. That's what this feels like. This is like, if somebody told me to sit down and write a Jackson Brown song, this is the one I would probably come up with. (laughs) Anything else before we jump into some scores? Oh, that would be a no. All right, (laughs) Brian. (laughs) I have it at three. And then Wayne. It was my least favorite. I gave it a one. Yeah, I gave it a two. Um, And then just spoiler alert, this is our least favorite song collectively on the record so mm. all right next next up is the late show And uh, obviously, I like this song way more than you guys did. Um, I get the benefit of seeing everybody's scores ahead of time. So, mm-hmm. Wayne, was it the was it the harmonies of the Eagles backing him that uh, dropped it down for you? Um, I don't know. It's I mean, but it's packed in at this point now. The record's getting packed full of the songs that I really like. Um, but I did I did make a, a note that Glenn Fry is missing. Uh, and that, like I say, that's if that's the downside to being buddies with J.D. Souther and, and Dan Fogelberg and Don Henley, then so be it. Um, the, the sound effects grew on me. I think you have to put them in perspective because at first I felt like it, it was over the top. But by the time, uh, probably the third or fourth, fifth time through, I felt like it was part of the story. Um, so you, you're the, talking the about ending, the car the doors? The yeah, the car doors. And uh, this is the first, well, I guess if you count the cover, this is the second reference to an old Chevy. And, uh, and the song gets stronger at the end. I say that those last few lines about, you know, you're in a, a house where nobody lives. I'm in the car across the way. Um, 
you know, pack up all your sorrows. The trash man comes tomorrow. It gets the end of the song is very I mean, he He's definitely saves the best for last. Yeah. And if you've listened to the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame introduction speech that Springsteen gave when Jackson Brown was invited to the hall. So he talked about how those car doors closing has brought him to tears before. Yeah, that's a particularly poignant moment of the song, too. I, uh, I, I, you know, it's funny because I have this, I'm looking at my thing and I have this, I have this as a five, but this is one of my favorite songs in the record. And it just goes to show that, you know, like, and I love Farther On and Fountain of Sorrow. So it's just kind of, this is, this is, um, a song that, that I, feel moves me and honestly i'd probably give these all like an eight if that was the rules (laughs) (laughs) well that's not how we do our scoring so would wouldn't be an episode without somebody telling us that our scoring sucks no 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 your scoring is great i just feel bad saying calling this song a five it feels weird (laughs) no i i i we get it that last verse though since we're we're talking about the ending of of this song, that last verse is just perfection. Yeah, I I I and I love. There's a there's a thread in terms of the songwriting with a lot of, with the first four songs in this record where there's there's not really a chorus, um, and they're sort of free of structure. Well, Fountain of Sorrow I guess has a chorus or a B section, but they they kind of just read like freeform poetry, and and somehow it doesn't feel all over the place. Yeah. But but that that final verse where he's able to say these things when you read it 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 doesn't seem like it should fit into the song <laughs> but it does right I mean if I, if I were just to do freeform verse right now and just quoting the verse it doesn't pack I don't think it'll pack the same punch as hearing it all together I mean mm-hmm. just. Like I said, that that last verse is just perfection. Trash man comes tomorrow. Leave it at the curb, and we'll just roll away. Mm-hmm. It's that's great, Wayne. What you got for a score? Um, he feels bad about his five. I also feel bad about a three. But like I say, I the songs ahead of this, uh, I, I really at least four of them are are some yeah. of my favorite and I, songs. I'm giving this a seven. I really connected with this song, mm-hmm. and. Maybe it's because I don't have the same disdain that a lot of people have for the Eagles. I know we've 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 talked at length uh, about uh, about the Eagles. Well, you, guys, you guys keep making fun of me for liking the Eagles. No, but, uh, this, I actually wrote one of my notes as maybe the best uh, Eagles song they never recorded. Yeah. <laughs> they, they took "Take It Easy." They should have they should have hustled this one out of them. <laughs> Glenn Fry could have killed this. I, I was just gonna say. So so did that that kill any of the scores for you guys? Cause you were viewing this as like a, an extension of the, no, Eagles. no, I don't, I don't have that feeling. <laughs> I was going to say in some ways it did. It did for me. Not, not tremendously. It just, but like I say, there's, there's no way those when, especially when the harmonies get heavy, uh, that's, that's what two, two fifths of mm-hmm. the, uh, of the Eagles harmonies right there. So you can't, it's not, there's nothing he could have done about it except higher, backup singers and since he was trying to cut costs this is what you got to do i know but it wasn't timothy b schmidt wasn't timothy b schmidt that was doing the the background uh this is pre-timothy b schmidt yeah this is way pre and i i got i I, i'm gonna believe that jackson brown has more respect for his art than that (laughs) okay apparently i've walked into an ongoing dispute about timothy (laughs) you absolutely have it's it's 
it's right up there with our dispute on Toto's Africa. So, I see. <laughs> we, we we have we we are in need of so much therapy. It's not even funny. Yeah, I'm getting that. <laughs> that's what this was. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, let's uh, let's flip the record over. Uh, what do you guys have to say about uh, the road in the sky? Oh, I I love this song. This this song made me think about how much the piano is missing from from rock and roll. Not only at this time, but even even more so now. But I mean, I mean, some of the founding fathers of rock and roll, you know, Little Richard, uh, Antoine Fats Domino, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, this song just brought all those those back that you know it's hard how do you not like a boogie woogie piano it's just uh it was great phenomenal any any clue what's creating the effects during the chorus i guess that's considered yeah, a is, chorus right oh wait no the jug is on walking slow what's what is yeah what is yeah that? yeah i don't i don't know what is on on the the chorus i, I was trying to figure it out and i was looking at credits and i i couldn't figure that out no, yeah, I don't. I don't, I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just know I loved it. Yeah, this tune for me is a, is a so you know uh, this is a cl- a classic sort of Jackson Brown almost Southern rock tune. And there's there's a, almost one of these on every Jackson Brown record on, of these first ones. That's kind of like it's sort of like a palate cleanser. Yeah, and he does them very well. Like there's on For Every Man It's Redneck Friend and um and even though. I have to rank this slightly lower just because I don't have, it's not a song that you would have necessarily a deep connection with. It's sort of just a rock and roll tune. Uh, so I have it kind of low on my ranking, but I love this song, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the one lyric on here. So has anybody been able to hotwire reality? <laughs> not yet. Yeah. Not currently. Yeah. Still. Yeah. It's already running though. I think you'd want to shut it off. So I didn't, I, my favorite line is, uh, don't think it won't happen just because it hasn't happened yet. Because I'm always telling my son, just because nothing bad's ever happened to you, doesn't mean anything that nothing bad can happen to you. So it reminded me of that. There you go. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to see MacGyver try and hotwire reality. <laughs> see if you can do that with a paperclip and bubblegum MacGyver. All right, let's get some scores. So Brian. I have it at two. And then Wayne. I gave it a seven. It was a nice change. I, the, of all the songs on the record, these there's only really two that that have a different thing, and this is by far the best one as far as right. my opinion. And um, I give this a three. Let's move on. This is for a dancer.
this what this is uh i think he took a, a a subject that can can get cliche and can get uh overdone and i think he absolutely uh knocked it out of the park like i say there was an authenticity to it that made me keep looking until i found out who it was about um but i know this song was played at john belushi's memorial service and then jackson brown actually performed it at phil hartman's memorial service mm-hmm. but uh like i say this is a subject that can get overdone and 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 he completely ju- i gave it um he took it seriously but not ridiculously seriously he didn't come over the top and uh there was like i say there was this genuineness uh to it that apparently was about a friend of his who was a dancer in the ice follies and he uh he died it was actually horrifying he was in a sauna and the house burned down around him he had no idea because he was in a sauna and so uh i mean like i was saying earlier without those kind of without that real life experience I don't know that you could do something this well. Mm. Yeah, that's the 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 this song is. I think it's it, it sort of encompasses everything that I love about Jackson Brown's writing, which is the, you know, in that last the last stanza of the song, somewhere between the time you arrive and the time you go, may lie a reason that you were alive, but you'll never know. Is sort of, in summary, what all what all his work is about. You know that the search for that meaning, and uh, for me, this song is just top tier. I I do want to ask. So, what's with all the Jackson Brown songs that start with the the word for? So his previous record was called For Every Man. Mm-hmm. There's a song titled that as well. He had a minor hit off of Lawyers in Love called For a Rocker. Mm-hmm. There's a song on '86 record called For America. On the Naked Ride Home, there is For Taking the Trouble. I'm just trying to figure out why he feels like he has to use that. I think that indicates that it's a tribute of some sort Maybe. or, you know, yeah, it's about something specific. I, I Or he's putting secret messages in the songs. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The lyrics on this for, for, for me just drive it home. This is where where I said I was, I was, I connected with another song. This is, this is my top song. Um, and I think it's, I really think that it's the lyrics that really drove it home for me. There's the, the, the one verse where it's just do do the steps that you've been shown by everyone you've ever known until the dance becomes your very own, no matter how close to yours and other steps have grown in the end, there is one dance you'll do alone kills mm-hmm. me man yep. love it yeah it's just great <laughs> we all sighed yeah, <laughs> you had mentioned david lidley playing the fiddle and i would consider this a violin not a fiddle because <laughs> this uh, the violin in this is uh really once again it's a it comes in and it conveys that melancholy obviously someone passed that's sad but there are some of the lyrics that that are a touch hopeful, like, you know, like you said, you, uh, what, what is this all about? You know, find out, spend your life finding out. Don't worry about what it's, what, what it's about. So you want to go, you want to go a little more high class and call it a violin as opposed to a fiddle. I think in this, in this particular instance, I'm going to, I'm going to demand that it be referred to as a violin. (laughs) Well, just so you know, he's played fiddle 
for a ton of people, including Linda Ronstadt, Dolly Parton, and of course. It's literally the same instrument. Yeah, it is. But there you go. All right. I already gave you my score. All right. Well, what you got, Brian? I got a seven. And then Wayne? And I, I gave it a six. All right. That moves us to Walking Slow. Walking Slow. Sometimes we forget we love each other and we fight for no reason. I don't know what I'll do if she ever leaves me alone. I got a thing or two to say before I walk on by. I'm feeling good today, but if I die a little farther along, I trust in everyone to carry. I got to tell you, so I'm just going to start this out. So usually the hand claps can save a song for me and score higher under our scoring system, but that jug ruins it for me. <laughs> the jug ruins it for you. It really it does. Ruin it, but it did leave me wondering uh, what they were thinking. Yeah. Because at first I thought it was like his kazoo broken. <laughs> it does kind of sound like a kazoo. I actually, I had looked it up when I first heard it. I thought it was a kazoo. I, I do have to tell it so so it's professional jug player. I looked at the the credits. Holy professional God. jug player Fritz Richman, who is playing on the jug. And I got to tell you, you know, you you talked about kazoo. So a couple months ago, I was a chaperone for my son's fourth grade field trip to Saint Augustine, and I got to tell you that the jug playing sounded like farts it sounded like a fourth graders fake farts okay. <laughs> so i'm just and i'm just saying i i have a fourth grader he going into fifth grade at home and it sounds exactly like what his his friends were trying to do on the bus going up to saint augustine so, so not not armpit fake farts but like uh, raspberry fake farts raspberry raspberry fake farts okay. yeah 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 this song was actually released as a single. Uh, you guys believe yeah, that? It's, I mean, I understand why, you know, in in the idea of, of getting a, something radio friendly off this record, which it's, it's very much not. It's the only thing that's what, that's like three minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely my least favorite song on the record. Although I, I actually don't mind it in terms of filler. I think you kind of need a, cleanser between this and uh, between for dancer and uh before the deluge because otherwise you'd kill yourself um so <laughs> this to me kind of I, I it's just a reset and i think albums need that you know something's gotta be the the worst song on the album so if it's gotta be something i think this is a pretty good one yeah yeah it's just a little ditty about walking yeah i th- lose the jug and i would probably rate it just a little bit higher i probably would have been all right with it <laughs> all right ben's anti-jug i'm anti-jug apparently um didn't realize that about myself until i i really listened to this album so it's, it's not it's not it's not pretty on you no, ben. no it's not <laughs> uh wayne what was your what was your score i gave it a five and i i came down Whoa. to the i know <laughs> just i 
like I said, I also thought, but I thought it was a kazoo because I hate the jug too. And I didn't even, I didn't realize it. Oh. Uh, but it, it came down to this and the next song. And while I do love the next song and I think it's uh, a better lyrical song, it's also ultimately a baby boomer pity party. And so I just based it on that. And then my parents are baby boomers. So I, I, I went ahead and went with uh, walking slow over before the deluge. Gotcha. Obviously, you needed your palate cleansed a little bit more than... <laughs> I, I think so. Also, yeah. I just felt rushed. We just did a podcast on Saturday, and so I, I, I've been listening to this thing nonstop for like since Saturday afternoon, and I don't know what happened. Somewhere somewhere <laughs> along the way... <laughs> Oh, don't let us make you feel. Don't let us make you feel uh, insecure about loving that jug. Yeah, it's you know what? It's mostly I think the 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 pedal the pedal steel guitar is picked up where I know that it's, obviously I'm being facetious when I say he's just learning. But if he was just learning by this song, he has it pretty. He has it pretty much down. Okay. And uh, the hand claps also did boost it for me because if uh, and I think there was maybe less Don Henley. Less Dan Fogelberg too. It kind of felt more like a Jackson Brown song. A lot of piano too. There it is. There's the there's the anti Eagles vitriol coming. Not out anti. Yeah. In All an right. Eagles song, they sound perfect. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's move on. So this is uh, this is the last track. This is before the deluge. For the deluge Now let the music Keep our spirits high Let the buildings Keep our children dry Let creation Reveal its secrets By and by to get us started with this all right well I'll, I'll say i mean i i i think this song i mean there i understand what you're saying about it sort of being a baby boomer uh sort of uh, well pity party you put it it's 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 definitely a little bit guilty of that and i've definitely listened to this song a few times and thought like well i could see how somebody might not think this is the most brilliant thing they've ever heard but it's sort of it's not the beginning of Jackson's political writing uh, by any stretch because there's, you know, Dr. My Eyes is obviously a political song that's on the first record, but it, it, it shows that side of Jackson's writing and sort of works it in with the theme of the record, this existential restlessness, this sort of concern about life and death and what we're all doing here. And it sort of uh, creates to me the perfect ending for this record. I agree that it is, it is perfect to end on. Um, I think it's, and I do love, I love the the concept. I, I mean, I, I gave him, I gave it a less score because it is a pity party, but ultimately it's about, it, it it's about selling out in all of these, these hippies had all these big, wonderful ideas, whether it was to save the environment um, or and all of these wonderful, you know, they're going to change society and everything's going to be better. And, and and they didn't. But at the end of the day, I think the line that that did it for me that that I found most 
uh, important was the uh, let the music keep our spirits high, let the buildings keep our children dry. Because that's that's what it's it ends up being all about. You have all these grand ideas um, when you're younger. You're going to fight the man. You're going to right the wrongs. You're going to you know stand up and and make a difference. And then you got you got to keep your babies warm and dry. Mm-hmm. And there's that's I mean. If you don't do that, you're a colossal narcissist. Yeah. Uh, let's not go political. <laughs> uh, too late. Yeah. Yeah, that that last verse, you, you you brought it up, very apocalyptical. Is that mm-hmm. is that the word? Apocalyptic? Not apocalyptic, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so What's interesting is, so I did a Google search because I'm always trying to see if somebody has written, you know, an essay about the, about a song or, you know, give me, give me some song meetings. I don't always, I don't always put much value in, into some of those, some of those writings, but I looked up before the deluge and it's, there's a French film from 1954 with that title. And the synopsis from Wikipedia says, so it's four boys and a girl who want to get away from their parents and their country because they're fr- they're afraid of an atomic war. They plan to use a boat to get to an uh, idyllic island. When they realize their savings aren't sufficient, they feel it was justified to obtain the required money by committing a crime. So there's a little bit of uh, apocalypse going on in that. So was he, was he inspired by this French film that I've never heard of? Hmm. Sounds quite possible. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know either. I was hoping somebody had some more, more, more dirt than, than I had. So. No, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know the background of this or I only, I don't, you know, I, my experience with this record was sort of before I would listen to a record and, and read the Wikipedia, you know, um, and so, so I kind of, all the songs have this special place in my heart where they all have whatever meaning I put to them, you know, and this song to me always felt like it was just a song about, uh, the end of the world, you know, and, and what that meant for all of us, uh, which I think it is, you know, in, in so many words, but I don't know what it's inspired by, you know, I imagine just yeah. catastrophic thinking. Right. So production wise, what, what is Jackson trying to portray with that really long fade out at the end of the song? Cause it's like nearly 30 seconds long for the mm-hmm. fade out. So do, do we need to overanalyze that as well, Wayne? Yeah, I think it's the end of the world. It's <laughs> okay. Static until, until, until the batteries run out. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, and it's just a very cool way to end the record. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. All right. Let's get some scores on this. So, uh, Brian, uh, I gave it a six. Okay. And Wayne, I gave it a four, but I don't feel good about it. So <laughs> no, I don't, I don't feel good about my four either. Um, cause I, I do really like this song, but there was just a few other songs that, uh, that trumped it. So, all right. Well, did we did we cover everything? Did we miss anything on this record? I think we nailed it. I think we nailed yeah. it. I, hearing the average, what in my head, what the average scores are, I think we're I think we're right. <laughs> yeah. Any any guesses on what the top score is based off of our average uh, average scores? I think it's a track one, right? 
Yeah, late late for the sky, definitely definitely our first. Uh second. Uh, oh, are we guessing all of them? Oh, uh for a dance for for a dancer. Yeah, for okay. a dancer. And uh let's see, we've got late show uh third, followed by before the deluge, and then rounding out the uh the top five would be the road in the sky. And that's all Wayne's mm. doing. Mm. <laughs> He's got to blame the piano diddy on me. All right, fair enough. I could live with yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think we can we can do that. And uh, I do have to say, you know, so I'm looking I'm looking at the time for the recording here. Uh, we are we have done that in like record time. We made this through in like you know record time. And I think you purposely chose an album that that only had eight songs. That way, you didn't have to spend two hours with us. Actually, I just I'm trying to get more clicks. So if they see that it runs a little shorter, you know, maybe uh, they'll click on me. They'll find out about my music. There you go. There you go. Yeah, uh, I guess that's kind of a word of of the wise to uh, our upcoming guests that maybe you shouldn't choose records that have 13 songs. Uh oh. So, anyways. No, that's all good. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure revisiting with you. So, Brian, tell tell all of our listeners where they can find all of your happenings. Okay. Well, uh, you can if you just Google me, Brian Dunn, but BrianDunnMusic.net is where all my stuff is. And I'm playing at the end of the month in New York City, and then I'll be out for a couple of shows. I'll be at the Levon Helm Barn and uh, up at the Narrow Center and down at the Birchmere. These are all East Coast places. And then I'll be sort of traveling around the country playing my songs. So come find me. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, last question, lifting this question from a fellow podcaster here in Orlando. So he asked the question, so who do you know that I don't know who would want to join us on this podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? And you can't you can't say Stephen Kellogg or Caroline Spence because those they've already joined us. Ah, okay. Well, Anthony D'Amato is a buddy of mine, and he's a, he, he is a buddy of Stephen's. Uh, and okay. he's, he's a very, very good singer songwriter. And, uh, let's see who else. Uh, Ken Yates is, uh, one of my favorite singer songwriters. And you guys mentioned Liz Longley. Do you know Liz? Uh, I, th- I threw out at the beginning of the year before we had some, some momentum. I threw it out to her manager and never heard back from them. Ooh, so. maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll mention it. Steven told me, he's like, you need to, you need to reach out to her again. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, and use my name. So, right. Yeah. So, so I think, I think we will, uh, we're, I mean, we're, we're, we're on a, we're on a good little roll right now where I've got guests lined up through September mm-hmm. and, um, well to September. And, um, so it's, it's a nice, nice problem to have where I'm not like rounding up guests. It's, it's, uh, it's nice. beautiful. So yeah. 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 Um, and you know, Wayne, maybe we need to start keeping track of our referral chains, <laughs> like seven degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon or something. So, yeah. so six, six degrees of Stephen Keller. There, there you go. Well, it's actually six degrees of Jesse Humphrey. Cause oh, there you oh, go. That's right. Cause Jess, cause Jess, oh, Jess wow. yeah, Jess, right. Jesse's the one who referred us to Stephen Kellogg, who then referred yep. us to, to Brian. So oh, all right. you, you guys, your chain is tied with Ira Elliott of Not a Surf, Doug Gillard, and John Pekovic. So, and we're still waiting for John's referral to get back to me for next steps, which 
if that comes through, uh, Wayne's going to be very happy because I'm pretty sure that dude is not going to pick Toto's Afro. <laughs> never know. You'd be su- you'd be surprised who thinks that's a cool song these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, time does weird things. It it does absolutely. That's for sure. All right. So as a reminder to all of our listeners, you can find all of our happenings on our Facebook page for the Records Revisited podcast. We're on Instagram using the hashtag Records Revisited podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, our podcast host page at recordsrevisited.podomatic.com, which John Lamoureux of the Hustle podcast tells us that our hosting sucks. But, you know, there you go. Oh, and we're also on iHeart. Uh, media as well we're on that app as of a couple weeks ago so on all those platforms please go subscribe rate or review us we would appreciate that kindly so thanks for listening please go support the arts go to a live show buy a t-shirt of the band buy a record visit a record store and not just on record store day we are records revisited and we are out out